0: Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or
1: another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Hey guys, welcome to episode 108 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So before we get started, we just want to thank you again for any reviews that you left and if you've donated to our Patreon page because we've seen a really big growth in both our donations and our reviews. So we just always like to thank you for that.
0: Yes, thank you guys.
1: And if you're interested in joining our Patreon page, you could do that at patreon.com slash couple and you will, at like a $5 donation, get two extra episodes a month. And then a $10 donation and up, you do get the lovely gift of John's After Show, which we just recorded our first episode of yesterday. That
0: was fun. It was I enjoyed really it.
1: Fun. Okay. Are you ready to get started? Yeah, I'm ready. On December 3rd, 1997, the Dasso family was celebrating the 10th birthday of the young twins of Frank Dasso. Frank, his wife, their children, his sister, her husband and his parents, were all supposed to meet at the family's favorite restaurant. Afterwards, they were going to all head over to his parents' house for a cake. Well, that was what was supposed to have happened. Instead, Frank's parents, Phil and Nicoletta, waited for Frank, their daughter, Diane Patisto, her husband, their son-in-law, George Patisto, to arrive. All five of them were supposed to head over to the restaurant together. Before they left, they were going to call Frank's wife so she knew to leave with the girls as well. But they had been waiting for a long time, about an hour. Frank's wife called to ask them if they had heard from Frank, because she was still trying to get in touch with him at the factory, but he wasn't picking up the phone. The factory that she was talking about was the factory that Phil, part-owned, and which Frank and George both worked at. They specialized in making machines that are used in clothing warehouses and dry cleaners. So like, you know that equipment that makes the clothes like go on a conveyor belt kind of thing?
0: Like the carousel?
1: Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. They make the equipment that makes the carousels.
0: If I'm not mistaken, that's actually pretty expensive stuff. I can imagine. Like that whole setup. I think that's the most expensive part of a dry cleaning service.
1: Yeah, I would think so. And they also service them too. So they really did a lot of work and they made a lot of money doing this. That's pretty cool. So Phil told his daughter-in-law that he would figure out what was going on and then call her back. But until then, dinner plans were obviously on hold. Phil called the factory several times but he wasn't getting a response either. Phil and Nicoletta made the decision to take the 13-mile drive to the factory to see what was happening, because it was really unusual for no one to be there to pick up the phone. When the elderly couple got to the factory, they saw two cars in the parking lot. They were the cars that were supposed to be there. Diane's sedan was parked in the lot. She was supposed to pick up her husband and brother and drive them to their house, so it made sense that Diane was there, but they were wondering what was holding the three of them up. The other car belonged to George Gonzalez, and he was the co-owner of the factory with Phil. And they had been partners for decades at this point, so he was kind of like family. He was always at the factory after hours, so it was normal that he would still be there. The only thing that was strange about the cars was that it implied that five people were inside but not one of them was answering the telephone.
0: I mean, that seems a little strange, you know?
1: Yeah, someone would be there in the office doing some work to pick up the phone, so...
0: That is true. I mean, unless they're, like, like hyper-focused, like, on what they're doing, it's I mean, it's possible. I, I don't throw anything out, you know, but...
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, things happen, but it has to feel eerie, especially because, at this point, Diane's already there. So, most likely... Something bad happened.
0: Yeah. I think what makes it creepy is the fact that it's like a like a factory slash warehouse. Yeah. You know, and that's probably like what it is.
1: And as they got to the warehouse, like the creepiness probably increased because all of the lights were out too. So.
0: Okay. All right. Well, the, like, this is the beginning of a scary movie. Like lights, <laughs> this is the beginning of Lights Out. That's true. Oh my God. You're right. It's that movie actually case. good though. Watching it a second time definitely made me feel like it was good.
1: Yes. I agree. Second watch was better than the first. So as they approached the factory, they also found the front door unlocked. And like I said, the lights were out. Now, usually when the factory is shut down, because it is after hours at this point, the doors are supposed to be locked. So two things that are strange. Lights out, but doors are opened. So it was pitch black inside the factory and Phil and Nicoletta could barely see in front of them. They carefully made their way into the front entrance and towards the light switch. As they walked up the front hallway, Nicoletta tripped over something that was lying across the hallway. She felt something wet when she fell. As her eyes adjusted to the darkness, and because she was a mother, she knew as soon as she approached the mass on the floor that it was her daughter, Diane. Phil was finally able to get to the lights, and he could, too, see the body of his daughter lying in the hallway. Nicoletta dropped to her knees and picked her daughter up into her arms. A massive amount of blood soaked the floor around them both. She had been shot twice in the head. In devastated silence, Phil looked on as his wife held his deceased daughter, realizing that his son and son-in-law, were not in sight. He ran to the office to look for them. Phil was shocked by the sight that greeted him in his son's office. His son, his son-in-law, and his business partner, his best friend for thirty years, were all dead. They had also been shot, and the office was a disaster. Immediately, Phil picked up the phone and he called 911. He realized then that the phones were working. So that meant that they had to have been killed before himself and his daughter-in-law started placing the phone calls to the office. Now, in all of the years of working on this podcast, I don't think that I've heard a rougher, more like devastating nine one one call than this nine one one call that Phil placed to the police. Um, the Dosso's were a very very close family. They spent every second they could together, and George Gonzalez was a part of that family as well. And they were just so happy, and that was taken away, all of it, within a matter of minutes for Phil and Nicoletta, and within the nine one one call you can hear. The pain. Like Phil is screaming into the phone. They're all gone. My son, my daughter, my son-in-law, my friend, all gone. And in the background, you could hear like this guttural groan coming from his wife.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, you got to think like you have to think about what they have just stumbled upon, right? I mean, their entire family is slaughtered. Yeah. You know, their whole world, their whole world, which is I can't even begin to think about how that must feel.
1: Yeah. So it's just that is a really rough ended one call to get through. So detectives arrive at the scene almost immediately and their first instinct tells them that this was a professional job. All of the men had been shot execution style in the back of the head with a 22 caliber gun. 12 empty shell casings were scattered about the floor. However, in the hallway where Diane had been found, there was also a thirty-two caliber shell casing. Her wounds differed from that of the men because she had been shot in the face. And because there were two weapons used, this made them think that not only was this a professional job, but that there had to have been more than one killer.
0: Yeah, it's uh I mean that does make sense if there's multiple weapons.
1: Yeah. You know, that's interesting because uh, another case that we covered there were two weapons but then there was only one killer. But this is a little different because it looks very professional.
0: Yeah, um were the people shot in the head that was with the 22? Yes. Hmm. And mean, that was
1: in the office, so it okay. was separate from where she was found.
0: Okay, but she was also shot in the head, though, too.
1: She was um, shot in the back of the head once, and then in the face. Okay, so it seems personal, almost.
0: Yeah, well, well, at least with her, I'm thinking that they probably shot her with a 22, and then they realized that she wasn't dead, and then shot her again with a 32, because that's that's where we get that other casing from, from the 32. You know what I'm saying? And then the other ones. It's kind of interesting because they are kind of correct. These people seem professional because they know where to shoot somebody. I mean, everyone knows you shoot somebody in the head, they're right. dead. But it's the caliber being used that's interesting to me, right? Because right, you can shoot somebody anywhere in the body as long as it's not like in an artery or something, and they're fine. like you'll you'll be hurting, but you're not going to die. But you get hit in the head with a twenty-two, it's a totally different story.
1: I agree with that, but I think that the one thing that Makes him think that it's more than one killer is who, like, would one man have been able to subdue three other men?
0: Um, I think, I mean, I think so. I mean, not, first of all, he, someone can carry more, like, two weapons on them, walk in. You could have a disgruntled employee that's been there for years that just aggravated, you know, and just go in there and just wipe them out and corral them.
1: You could do that.
0: It seems like the the woman was walking away. Oh, I'm sorry, not walking. Let me take the, I, Let me take that back. She was running away. It looked like maybe,
1: or maybe she tried to escape. Because
0: it's interesting that the other three are in one area and she's mm-hmm. out in the hallway, which tells me that maybe she tried to run or get help. Or, right. So maybe they were. Maybe this one. If it was one person, they were corralled in one spot and then she kind of ran off. I don't know. It's interesting.
1: Well, as the investigators walked through the crime scene, more differences seemed to glare out at them. The first thing was the positioning of the bodies. It told a very interesting tale. Three men had been all shot in the office, execution style. Two of the victims, George Petisso and George Gonzalez, had been shot while they were on their knees with their hands behind their head. However, Frank Dasso had died last. And he was most likely trying to get away or to protect himself because he had been shot in the wrist as well as um, grazes to his face. So and then finally, he was shot in the back of the head. So it might have been where the first two were shot. Frank was trying to get away so that the shooting went differently with Frank. But in total, all three men were shot 12 times. Now, in the main entranceway was Diane. She had been grabbed by her hair and attacked. So detectives knew this because her attacker must have grabbed her hair. And in her trying to get the attacker's hand out of her hair, she must have grabbed her own hair herself. Because in her fist was hair, her own hair. Oh, wow. Like, she had ripped her own hair out trying to get away from this man. Or women.
0: We don't know. True.
1: Well, you don't know.
0: Were, what was the... <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, was the... Um, when they were on their knees, did, were they subdued? Like with Like, were they tied? No. Okay. Also, when you just brought that up, I just want to point out it's possible that maybe when those other people were on their knees before they were shot execution style, maybe that one man that died later wasn't just because he was protecting himself, but maybe they were there for something. Maybe they were try. Maybe he was asked to open a safe or give me money in the drawer in your desk or something. You know, was anything like that. Yes. And the- then he was shot, like, wherever he was standing. And he put his arm up or, like, you know, in front of him to defend himself.
1: So, like, maybe he said, I'm looking for this and, and Frank was the one t- to find it for to, try to
0: Yeah, to go and retrieve it, yes.
1: I think that's a good point because all of this did happen in Frank's office. So, if something was there that they were looking for, most likely Frank would know where it is. Right. Now, um, like you had mentioned about Diane and her maybe not being dead. So, that's why they might have taken out the 32. But the first shot killed her.
0: Okay. So, the second shot was pretty much just uh, an insurance policy. Yeah. Okay.
1: Or aggression right because it was she was dead on the ground and they shot her in the face wow okay in addition to this the office of the factory the one in which the men were shot that belonged to frank dasso had been ransacked it looked as if the paperwork had been hastily gone through and file drawers had been opened and kind of like upended like everything was taken out of them there was also a footprint on the chair of the desk and directly above the chair was a displaced ceiling tile. Now they did check the footprint on the chair. It was kind of like, I don't want to say velvet, but a velvet like material. So it held the footprint very well and it was not the footprint or shoe print of any of the men within the office. Okay. So somebody went to get something from a ceiling tile.
0: So I'm assuming it's a drop-down ceiling. Yes. So, okay. A lot of people hide stuff in in, in drop-down ceilings. It's interesting. It's like the old school, like, way of doing things.
1: So the gold chain that had been around George Petisso's neck had been ripped from his body. Now, this was evident because a crucifix usually hung from George Petisso's neck. And next to his face was the actual crucifix. So the chain had been ripped from his neck, but they left behind the crucifix.
0: That's interesting as well. This this is pretty good. Yeah.
1: I mean, it could be for several reasons, maybe symbolically, or um, maybe because they felt like that would be identified if they tried to pawn this.
0: I see what you're saying.
1: Later, it would also be determined that Frank Tasso was wearing a Rolex watch during the attack. When he had lifted his hand to protect himself, he'd been shot in the wrist. And pieces of the watch band had actually been found embedded into his skin as a result of the gunshot wound. So the killer or killers had pried the watch from his wrist. But then that kind of discounts the theory of like the crucifix being able to be identified because a Rolex with a bullet through it could definitely be identified.
0: Well, that shows me that even though they have just ransacked the place, stole a bunch of things, also killed four people, but it all but in some in some weird way it shows that like religion's important to him. Okay. That's you know? interesting. we like does I, like I don't want to say, well, you've crossed the boundary, you literally killed people, but
1: He won't do that. He
0: won't take a symbol of religion
1: that's interesting maybe now this scene laid out a few potential scenarios for the detectives had one or two men went into the office to shoot the men and then a third man was standing out like as watch at the front door and then when diane arrived to pick up her husband and brother for the birthday party she was attacked as she was walking into the building and the motive was, if this scenario is true, most likely to take something from the office and then the robbery of personal effects was an afterthought.
0: I mean, it sounds like a good like way that it could have shaped you know shaped out to be. yeah. I mean I guess well won't know until
1: until the end Until the end <laughs> Or something else entirely had taken place. Detectives at the scene knew who Diane Patisto was. A few months prior, she had become one of the newest prosecutors with the state's attorney office in Polk County.
0: Wow. That actually makes, this changes a lot, actually, because I would think that this actually puts a target on her. Maybe they were there for her.
1: Exactly. Like, could her job have been the reason for her death and they were collateral damage?
0: I think that's a possibility. But how would they know that she was there to pick her, uh, pick them up?
1: that would be what they would need to figure out. Yeah. I mean, in reality, the state's attorney office did deal with a lot of hardened criminals that would be upset if their cases were prosecuted aggressively or if maybe they didn't offer a deal to them. And Diane had made it very well known that she had a goal of becoming a judge. And what that means, you know, if if you're a lawyer who... Is making it evident that you want to become a judge within the state's attorney office, you have to have a reputation for strongly upholding the law and being tough on criminals. So, as you can imagine, this is something that criminals might not like that much, you know? Absolutely. So, had she been the target and the men like I said, we're just collateral damage. Maybe the robbery was staged to throw them off. And if this was a hardened criminal, they most likely had the ability to pull something off so professionally. And maybe that's why she had been shot in the face. So, you never know.
0: I mean, that is interesting. I mean, like I said, that really does change a lot. Because now you can... I mean, it it kind of just seems like okay, a murder and a and a robbery, and it kind of like the like it kind of ends there. But now this fact literally branches this whole entire thing yeah. into like a multitude of different scenarios. <laughs> it's crazy.
1: So it would be easiest for the detectives to first work with the prosecutor's office and figure out if, in fact, Diane had been the target of this attack. It was a lead that was very easy to follow up on. The first thing they learned from those that worked with Diane was a basic timeline of events. She was a very dedicated woman, and she often stayed late at her job. And I just want to take a second here to give some serious credit to Diane for becoming a prosecutor and a really good one at the age of only 28 years old as a female in
0: 1997. That's pretty impressive. Yeah.
1: So it's really a shame that we didn't get to see how far her career could have gotten because she's had a lot of potential. Now, even though Diane always stayed late at work, on December 3rd, she didn't. She left the office early because it was her niece's birthday, something that everyone knew she was really excited for. Birthdays were always a big deal in the Dasso family. So she left around 4.30 p.m. and it took her about 30 minutes to get to the factory. The detectives were then granted complete access to the cases that Diane worked on and all the files she had. They learned quickly that she worked with mainly white-collar criminals, and no one defendant stuck out to them as being particularly bitter about their prosecution or sentencing. And she had really only been there for a few months. So this isn't like a prosecutor that's been working for 30 years and they have a list of people that would want to get back at them. So they really kind of quickly went away from that scenario because they didn't think that Diane was the main target of the attack, especially because, like you said, she wasn't necessarily supposed to be at the factory. So unfortunately, for Diane, it might have been a wrong place, wrong time kind of thing.
0: Right. So it's, it's a, there's a possibility that she wasn't the target and they were.
1: Right. So investigators had now narrowed down the targets to one or all of the males that were shot in Frank's office. The men had all been close. George Gonzalez and Phil Dasso had been in business together for 30 years, and because of this, George had known Frank since he had been a toddler. George Petisso had only known the family for a decade, but he was loved as if he was one of their own. By all accounts, there were no troubles between the three men, so the detectives turned to the business and their personal lives. They went through employee lists, customer lists, and fi- and the finances of the company. And in looking into their personal lives, they looked into their personal finances, if they had drug habits, or if there was a potential extramarital affair taking place. No debts were found with the business. Actually, it was the opposite. The business was doing really well. Or the men personally. No drug or alcohol addictions. Maybe an addiction to work, but that had been about it. No affairs, nothing. No clues had come from any of it. The only thing they had to go through now was a list of current and past employees. At any given time, there were 25 employees working at the factory, both in production and the offices. The first suspect they picked from the list was a man named Declan Weterburn. The 32-year-old had a drug problem and had to be let go because of his tardiness and drug use. That had been three weeks before the murders had taken place. However, this very promising lead ended up a dead end when the detectives learned that Weterburn had actually been in jail on drug-related charges during the murders. There's no greater alibi than prison.
0: No, I mean, you're totally accounted for.
1: (laughs) The detectives go to Phil to talk about the business a few days later. They wanted to give him time to calm down and mourn after the loss of both of his children, his son-in-law, and best friend. Phil said that the factory was actually doing very well, and he had been proud that Frank had stepped up and became a manager and that his son-in-law had just taken a job in sales. He wanted the family business to continue as a legacy after he was gone. They then asked him if they had any bad business dealings. And he told detectives that he hadn't had any bad dealings with customers. It really wasn't like a high-risk business where you would have those kind of interactions. But he did have one business deal that went south. And he was talking about Nelson Serrano. So in the beginning, in the 1960s, Phil Dasso and George Gonzalez started the Erie Manufacturing Cooperative in New York. Back then, they made tools and dyes to support the garment industry, which is massive in New York City, if you didn't know, especially back in the 60s and 70s. They were doing really well for themselves but they knew there was a potential to make more money if they could do more. In the mid-1980s, they met Nelson Serrano. Serrano worked for a company out of New Jersey that does slick rail systems, which is used as the conveyor system for the garment factories, warehouses, and dry cleaners. The three men wanted to go into business together. Phil and George wanted to make more than just tools, They wanted to make the whole conveyor system, but they didn't know how to design or install those systems. That was where Serrano came into the picture. But the men were looking for a way to make everything cheaper. By the 1980s, most of the garment industry moved out of New York City, um, in particular Manhattan, because most of the warehouses or factories they couldn't afford, so most people, instead of keeping their facilities in Manhattan, chose to go to either Brooklyn or New Jersey. The men thought that they would have an advantage if they made things even cheaper. They wanted to go to Florida. This way, overhead would be low and they could charge businesses less for their system, basically creating a monopoly in the conveyor systems all along the East Coast.
0: So this was like the first attempt in making things cheaper to make more profit. Yep. It's like... In the com- industry. In the industry. This is what like people do now, I guess, like overseas, I guess. Yes. So that's interesting. Why do I get... <laughs> this is bad. In my mind, I think, okay, we're talking about New York City. We're talking about Jersey. Uh, the guy's last name is Serrano. Why do I get this in my mind? Like the gangster, like maybe like the mob tie here somehow.
1: There's no mom ties. No, That's, okay. You know what, John? I'm surprised. Why? That you, as an Italian, are just gonna be like, it must be the mob because <laughs> it's the garment industry. Yeah, in You know city. what? I,
0: I'm just, I'm just, I was just throwing it out there. You never know. I might have hit on something.
1: No, it's a good. Well, actually, uh, Serrano was Ecuadorian. So. Oh, never mind. Yeah. Um, and so was Gonzalez, and then uh, Dasso is Italian, though.
0: Okay. All right. Well, I thought maybe uh, just a shot in the dark. You know, maybe it had mob ties somehow.
1: You're throwing theories out there. I mean, it wouldn't make sense, but I'm wrong this time. time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, as part of an oral agreement, the three men pursued this lofty goal, and Serrano bought into the Erie Manufacturing at one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. He would have to pay seventy five thousand dollars to each man in order to buy into the company and all three of them moved themselves and their families to barstow florida and this is something that kind of like worked out better for Gonzalez and serrano because then that meant they were closer to their families too that still lived in ecuador all right cool because phil had one day hoped that his son would also work in the factory when nelson said that he wanted his son to come on as well to work in shipping he said he was more than happy to employ his son, who was named Francisco Serrano. So by the early nineteen nineties, the dream that the men had was coming to fruition, and they were all doing really well. Well
0: that's good though. See when a good when a plan works, it's fantastic. Yep. Yeah.
1: So the business was going really well at first when they got to Barstow, Florida. But what wasn't going well was the relationship between three men. Not good. Yes. So, Gonzalves and Serrano fought constantly about what is unclear. However, we do know that there were two serious points of contention. First, Serrano had never paid the other two men the 75000 that he owed them for entering into the existing business and partnership. That's a pretty big deal.
0: I mean, it is. I, I mean, you're not holding up your end of the bargain.
1: But you're making the profits from
0: it. Right. I mean, the, I mean, the smart thing to do would have been to say, hey, I can't come up with it right the second. Um, can I use the profit that would profits that would be mine? Maybe I can give that as as collateral or, you know.
1: Like saying, okay, I'm going to only take 80% of my profits, give 20% of my profits to you. Until everyone's paid off. Until, yeah.
0: I mean, that would make sense.
1: Yes, John, that would make sense. Why do
0: people fight about money for (laughs) it?
1: You'll always fight about money. It's so true. The second thing that was a point of contention was the employment of Francisco Serrano. Francisco did not have a good work ethic, and he did not really get along with anyone in the factory. Now, again, this is Nelson Serrano's son. He also was illegally using the factory shipping department To make money for himself on this side, he had this like side hustle of an export business and he was selling goods back to people in Ecuador and he was using the company's boxes and postage for free.
0: That's not cool, man. No,
1: especially (laughs) when your dad hasn't paid the partner. That's
0: true, actually. I mean, this is pretty bad. You have both (laughs) the father and the son kind of just like taking down this business. Yes.
1: So finally, when Gonzalves and Dasso found out what was going on in the summer of 1997, they were forced to let Francisco go, something that obviously did not sit well with his father. Serrano then cashed two company checks into a separate and private bank account for himself, amounting to
0: $200,000. That's a, what? Oh my God. Okay.
1: And he hired a lawyer to start a civil suit against the other two partners. He was claiming the business was supposed to be his. And the other two owners, Phil and George, because of this, voted him out of the partnership, right? Because it was like a three part presidency. So they were, when they voted, it was a two out of three majority made something pass. So they voted him out of the company.
0: See, this is a prime example of why everything has to be uh, documented because uh, I feel like documentation supersedes conversation.
1: Yes, and don't forget, it was an oral agreement. So because it was an oral agreement, and Serrano had never paid the 150000 to enter into the business, he ended up losing his civil suit, and he had to give the $200,000 back to Erie Manufacturing. He was basically forced into early retirement.
0: That's so crazy.
1: I know. Definitely was not a happy camper. So this was definitely a bad break. But that one needed to happen. And that's what Phil told investigators. Now, they didn't want to just take Phil's word for it. So they did interview other employees and past employees, and they said the same thing that Phil did. There was always problems between Serrano and George Gonzalez. And once Serrano was gone, the factory was like a whole different place. It was lighter, it was happier. And the factory workers also liked the fact that Phil Dasso and George Gonzalez did fire Francisco Serrano for what he was doing because not only was he taking advantage of the factory and like using those goods for free. But he really treated everyone in the factory like they were below him and they were scared to do anything because like that's one of the owner's sons. Right. So this was all very interesting information that the detectives received and it opened them up to two new suspects, Serrano and his son Francisco. The first person they wanted to talk to was Nelson Serrano. When they brought him in for questioning, he was very relaxed and didn't seem to be bothered by the questioning. His story very much aligned with what Phil and the other employees said. He didn't hide the fact that he did not agree or get along with George Gonzalez, And he was upset when his son was fired, and even more upset when he was pushed out of the company, that he had helped build up. Now, I don't want to you know, imply that Nelson Serrano didn't put a lot into this business because he did. The company that they have now in the Erie Manufacturing, they wouldn't have had without Nelson Serrano because he did teach them how to build the conveyor systems. And he was there for 11 years. So that's important to know.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think the, the biggest takeaway for, from this fact is that it's not that he did he contributed his time and you know and and like you said money um just not all of it <laughs> that he needed to but re- And he was difficult to deal with. Right. But regardless of all that I want to say most of this could have been avoided by having some sort of like thing written up where everyone signed and that there was like a deal in place. Yeah. You know what I mean?
1: Well, I think once like the employment of your son is terminated Then it became personal, and then I think that's when things got nasty.
0: Which I want to also say that kind of we have created so far like a motive. So if they did do it, this would be a motive for it.
1: A huge motive.
0: Yeah. So not only did you fire the guy's son, but you also voted him out and took with you everything that he helped create. Right. So that creates a lot of tension and hate.
1: Yes. But enough to kill two kids that you watched grow up in Frank and Diane.
0: I mean, I think that we've seen worse from other, like, even worse things being done to them. You know what I mean? Sure. So I, I, anything's possible. It anything's is a true crime when, podcast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, when someone robs you or you feel like you've been robbed and now your family's going hungry, you know, you know what I mean? Yes. That's... You know, that it, that has made people snap.
1: That's very true. So in his interview, Nelson Serrano is going to tell investigators that besides himself, Gonzalves had a lot of enemies. He said that the man was abrasive and didn't do good business and that they should look into other employees or customers. Detectives asked Serrano for his whereabouts during the time of the murder. And they quickly realized why he was so calm. It couldn't have been him. He was in Atlanta on a business trip during the murders. There were airline records and hotel security footage to prove that he was in the hotel. The detectives even spoke to the other manufacturing company that he had been meeting with, and they confirmed that he was in attendance of the meeting.
0: Okay. The father... The father. Okay. But what about the son?
1: Well, that's who detectives want to speak to next. So they also heard from other employees at the factory that it wasn't just a few packages that Francisco Serrano was sending. He was basically running an entire exporting business through Erie Manufacturing. And he also didn't just get fired for the misuse of company time and products he was fired for insubordination. When he was confronted about what he was doing and was asked to stop, he refused and almost got into a physical fight with George Gonzalez. but it was broken up before it could get to that point. So he wasn't necessarily fired for what he was doing with his exporting business, but it was for his refusal to stop and him almost getting into a fight with George Gonzalez.
0: So... It's actually funny because I, I did I did think that there was more to this import-export business because I, I thought right away, could that be something or a reason for them to all be killed? What is he shipping and who is it going to? Who's on the receiving end of all this product?
1: Especially because he's shipping outside of the country. Do we know where? To Ecuador because that's where okay. they're, they're from. The-
0: I mean, th- whoever's receiving this, think about it. If you're making money... Because you're getting product from the United States, you're selling it there, you're making out real good. And now you're making money. And now if someone just all of a sudden has to stop and now you're not getting anything, who are you affecting on the receiving end? Correct. Because if it's bad enough, someone's gonna you know, they're if they're powerful enough, they'll just send people over and take care of you.
1: I completely agree with you.
0: So not Italian mob, but maybe cartel or maybe just Somebody that's so disgruntled over it, they're willing to have someone killed. Yeah. So. Maybe. I like this.
1: So first, when he's brought in for questioning, Francisco is cooperative. Um, so because obviously there's two Serranos. Um, if I, going forward, I'll say like Serrano, I mean the dad, and I'll say Francisco if it's the son. Okay. So when Francisco first comes in, he's really cooperative. But then when he catches on to the fact that he may be a suspect in these murders, he immediately shuts down and stops talking, and he requests to speak with his lawyer. When the detective gets out of the interrogation room, they learn that while they were in the room questioning their suspect, another detective also working the case received a phone call from a man who who offered up an alibi for Francisco during the time of the murders. Now, this man's name was never released to the public, nor does it appear in court documents. But the detectives that worked the case referred to the man and explained how he was useful in making connections during this investigation. So let's call him Michael. Well, Michael is going to place a call While Francisco is getting interrogated, and he's going to say that during the time of the murders, Francisco was at a car dealership with him. So the detective on the phone, realizing this was crazy, I mean, what is the coincidence that the suspect that you're questioning gets an alibi called in for him while you're questioning him? It's bizarre. So the detective on the phone says, okay, what was that date again? The man was silent on the other end and then hung up the phone.
0: Okay, so that didn't work. That was not <laughs> That was working. a very poor attempt in helping whoever you're trying to help here. Oh, my God. What? The, what? <laughs>
1: He's like, oh, you got me and <laughs> just hung up. <laughs> so what Francisco and Michael did not know was that Francisco's wife had been brought in down to the station to be questioned as well. Now, I should say, his soon-to-be ex-wife. Ah. And she did a lot of talking. She will also add a whole nother level of complication to this story. She told the police that her husband was mixed up with some scary criminals in Ecuador, and that when they get upset, someone usually dies. Interesting. So something told detectives to look into Michael's background and what they found was that he had a very interesting past. He had done some undercover work, um, for the FBI. So, uh, this is why I think his name was never released because of this undercover work. He had been arrested, um, smuggling drugs into the country and the federal government wanted to work with him to kind of take down people who were illegally buying military goods from the United States to smuggle them into Ecuador. So he was working as like an undercover agent trying to sell American military goods to the Ecuadorian military.
0: So we're kind of dealing with a black arms dealer is what you're saying? Yes. Okay.
1: So that's Michael's history. So now you're saying that Michael is offering up this alibi to Francisco, who's dealing with some type of exporting business to Ecuador. So it seems like Michael is just doing what he was pretending to do undercover. Like he really is involved in this.
0: Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Okay.
1: And these could potentially be the criminals that Francisco's wife is referring to.
0: I need to know more.
1: Yeah. So just a side note here. Um, in Ecuador at the time, under President Belon and his administration, Ecuador was open up to many international markets as it never had been before. So this, what they were doing might have been illegal within the United States, but not necessarily within Ecuador, because at the time there was no regulation on what went in and out of the country. And as a result of that, a lot of illegal activity, like the importing and exporting of drugs and weapons, was taking place between Ecuador and many other countries. And obviously this was something that was stopped at a later date.
0: Okay. So pretty much if you were able, if you were at least able to buy and get that those goods out of the United States, it was legal when it got to Ecuador.
1: Or easy to cover it up when it comes okay. to drugs.
0: Right. So, as long as you were able to get th- that stuff from the United States out of the United States, you were okay pretty much. Yeah. And the Ecuadorian
1: okay. military was also, you know, working on um, getting a lot of military grade weapons that way as well. Okay. Interesting time. So like you said, this could be what happened. Maybe when Francisco was fired and the shipment stopped, the wrong people got upset with that. I mean, don't forget too, like the shipping is free. So that was also helping them with gaining profits too. So, and if this was, like you said, like some kind of like black market, crazy gang infrastructure type thing we are dealing with, That would explain the execution-style murders. That's true. And the professionality of it all.
0: Yeah, like, we don't know who they are or what to even call them, really, because it's it's not just... It doesn't seem to be one person, so it's some sort of entity filled with a lot of different people. You know what I mean?
1: Right. And, you know, Michael just walked into this one. He literally called the police on himself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I mean... I, like I said, at least it was an attempt, but hey, that doesn't really help anyone.
1: No, not an A for F no. right here. So Michael and Francisco obviously are asked to come in for questioning again. When confronted with what the detectives thought was going on, the men started talking immediately. They had not committed the murders. They were upset that the exporting for free had stopped, but they did not murder four people over it. The reason why they had previously lied about the alibi was because they had been doing something else illegal. They were actually at a meeting with members of the Ecuadorian Air Force trying to sell them computer software. This crazy story was confirmed by the members of the Air Force that were there and had records of the meeting because, again, it wasn't illegal what they were doing.
0: On the, on the Ecuadorian side. On the Ecuadorian side. Okay. And then that's that would explain why the FBI is involved with an informant. Correct. Okay. Well, had been in the had past. Had been. Okay.
1: And that was why he was not arrested. Got it. So, crazy twist that went nowhere.
0: It's so crazy how we went from a burglary, murder, to selling of drugs and, and guns dealers, and now yeah. we're talking about the ecuadorian military yes. buying computers this is taking a very oh crazy it totally
1: turn. is and the two people that seem to have the biggest motive for committing this murder both have these crazy airtight alibis
0: it's almost like too good to be true
1: yeah well detectives had nothing to do but continue looking into employees that worked or had worked at the company. One man stuck out to them. His name was Mauricio Condencia. After the murders, it looked like he left town. Well, the country, actually. He had gone back to his native country of Ecuador. Seems like they hire a lot of people from Ecuador. But that's because George Gonzalez. And Nelson Serrano, when he did work at the factory, they wanted to help people that had immigrated from Ecuador to the United States as they had, and they wanted to to offer them the opportunity and chances that they had in America.
0: That's really nice. Yes.
1: So it does look a little weird that he left the country after these murders took place, and there was nothing that happened negatively at the factory, so nothing really made sense. So the detectives checked with U.S. Customs, who said that he actually left the country several times and was back in the United States. So they checked all of his known addresses in Florida, and he was not at any of them. They even went as far to check one of his known addresses in New York City, but he wasn't there either. And the people that were there said he hadn't been there in over six months. But in New York City, the detectives from Florida learned that he had a warrant out for his arrest because in New York City, about a year prior, he had been arrested for a DUI charge and he had failed to appear at his court date.
0: Not good. There's a
1: lot going on with uh, Maurizio. So they were unable to find him. They were also unable to find any other new leads in the case. Nothing new would happen until December of 1999, two years after the crime was committed. Maurizio Cendencia had been stopped at the border going into Canada. He was stopped by the Canadian police and the detectives from Florida went to question him. Imagine detectives from Florida spending December in Canada. They must have (laughs) been dying. (laughs)
0: <laughs> why don't we always you know it's probably from watching dexter but remember uh the the guy uh angel he had always wore the uh the palm tree like yes. button down like the hawaiian shirt kind of yes. i always think that that's what every detective in florida wears <laughs> i know that's wrong it's i shouldn't like Tommy do that Bahama shirts. yeah i shouldn't do that <laughs> but that's what i think in my mind well because it's hot down there you know you, yeah yeah you, know, you need something a little loose you know that lets air through it i don't know I put way too much thought into this.
1: No, I, I can. Now I'm picturing them freezing in Canada in Hawaiian shirts. Yeah. Okay. So when they questioned him, he thought he had been arrested for his DUI charge. He had no idea that he was a suspect for the murders that took place. And he was super upset about this because he explained that he loved the Dasso family and George Gonzalez. And everything that they had done for him, the opportunities they gave him, but he left because he was nervous about the DUI charges that he was facing back in New York City.
0: I mean, I get that. You know, you're afraid, but you can't run.
1: No, I mean, what kind of life is that? So he said that he definitely did not commit those murders. And it was really easy to check in on this because now that they had him, they also had his passport. And through customs, they weren't able to see when exactly he left the country. But during the murders, he was in Ecuador. So he couldn't have committed the murders. But he did have something interesting to tell them. Mauricio said, if you're looking into anyone who would have committed those murders, who hated Phil and George enough to want to hurt them and possibly kill them and the people that they loved, look in to Nelson Serrano. It had to have been him. He said that because he was also Ecuadorian, uh, Nelson Serrano, when he first came to the country, not only had him employed, but also had him live with him for a short time, until he was able to find housing of his own. But in that short time, Maurizio said living in the man's home was tumultuous. He learned a lot about him. For one, he seemed very mild-mannered in public, but like that's what he projects, but he actually had a horrible temper and he was a mean person. And that he had 37 registered guns in his home and he was an expert marksman he said because of this because of his temper and his quickness in grabbing a gun and like yelling and threatening people with it he left the house as soon as he could
0: i mean all that is pretty interesting but it doesn't really shape up to like who did this yet right
1: and remember he has that alibi
0: that's true unless like i said that those alibis really aren't uh, airtight. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're not. Maybe at first glance it might look like it. That's happened in the past in so many cases where a, an airtight alibi looks like it's, well, airtight, and then it turns out to, that they found the smallest little discrepancy and it destroys it completely. So uh, it is we possible. have to find out.
1: So clearing another suspect from their list the detectives head back to Florida to take a second look at Nelson Serrano. He had also been the one they suspected the most. Could he have been the one? They wanted to check his alibi again. The detectives looked again at the flight records from that day. According to records, Serrano had boarded a plane on December 2nd and headed to Atlanta, and he left Atlanta on December 4th. Now remember, the crime took place on December third. There was also footage of him at the hotel. But they noted something interesting. He had first been seen in his hotel room in Atlanta on December third at twelve twenty-one p.m., and then he was not seen again until ten eighteen p.m. That meant there was a ten-hour window in which he could have committed the murders.
0: I was right. There's a discrepancy.
1: (laughs) So Atlanta to Barstow is 500 miles. If he flew, he could have done it. So detectives checked if he had boarded the plane under another name. They searched under names of anyone that was known to Nelson Serrano. That was about 250 names but they came up with nothing.
0: Damn it, never mind.
1: So they went to Phil Dasso and asked him about any other people or names that might be associated with Serrano that were not on the list. Phil mentioned that Serrano had been married to a woman in Ecuador for a short time, and that was actually the mother of Francisco. But he didn't remember what her maiden name had been. So the detectives looked into this and they were able to find through divorce records that it had been a gacho. And sure enough, a Juan Agacho had flown from Atlanta to Florida and back again on the same day as the homicides.
0: Oh my God. Okay. I mean, hmm. So, wait, so he just used the maiden name then? Possibly. Hmm.
1: But how were they going to prove that Juan Gacho was Nelson Serrano? If it even was. The tickets had been paid for in cash. So that didn't help them. But luckily, a judge signed a warrant for the home of Nelson Serrano. They were specifically looking for a fake ID that he could have used to purchase the plane tickets. Don't forget, this is all happening in a pre-9-11 world because it's 1997. That is true. So Serrano was out of town when the warrant was served. Within Serrano's home, they found a sheet of like passport photos and two of them had been cut out, you know, as if they'd been used for two forms of identification. But they continued to search the house and that was all the search yielded. However, they also got a subpoena for his phone records at the time. If only we had like cell phone towers to ping in 1997, because you'd be able to tell where he was.
0: Some hey, listen, some improvements in technology really do help.
1: They do. So they saw on the days leading up to the murder that Serrano had been having a lot of phone conversations with his nephew, Alvaro Pena Herrera. Now, this was very interesting, so they brought the young man in for questioning. Pena Herrera had a very interesting tale to tell. He said in October of 1997, his uncle had asked him to do a favor. He had agreed. And on October 29th, your birthday.
0: That's my birthday.
1: His uncle drove him to the Orlando airport at the airport he was instructed to rent a car he then drove that car with his uncle nelson serrano following him to a nearby parking garage serrano then drove his nephew back to his apartment and thanked him for doing that the next time that pena herrera had heard about the car was when he received a confirmation call that the vehicle he rented had been returned on October 31st at 7.30 p.m. Okay. About a month later, around Thanksgiving time, Nelson Serrano had asked him to rent a car for him again. He said that his uncle told him he had a girlfriend coming in from Brazil and wanted to obviously hide this from his wife so he wanted his nephew to rent a car for them to use. On November 23rd, 1997, he reserved a rented car via telephone for December 3rd, 1997. Shady people. Oh my gosh. Telephone records obtained by police confirmed that on December 3rd, 1997, at 7.53 a.m., Serrano called his nephew from Atlanta. Pena Herrera told the detectives that his uncle had asked him to confirm that the rental car would be ready. He said, don't call him back. He would call back to check in again. So there were no records of his nephew calling the Atlanta hotel room. That's why he did that. At six a.m. Serrano called him again. His nephew confirmed the rental car would be ready. So, Serrano gave him the instructions to drive the rental car to the Orlando airport, leave the car in the same lot as they had last time, and he told him to leave the keys in, like, the gas tank door.
0: You mean the little latch?
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, not in the gas tank.
0: Where the gas cap is. Yes, correct. Okay.
1: (laughs) I don't have a lot of interaction with gas doors because I'm uh, from New Jersey.
0: Okay, really quickly. Hold on. I have to tell everyone. This happens all the time where anytime we go anywhere outside New Jersey, I have to pump gas because Kay doesn't know how.
1: I've gotten gas all over myself before.
0: And I'm like, <laughs> one time it was so bad that she did get gas on herself and I almost passed out in the car because there was just fumes of gas like all over her clothes. And I said, how did this even happen? So, ladies and gentlemen. I,
1: I have, I mean, I could, ex- I'm not going to go in, into defense of myself, but it was a complicated contraption
0: well okay ladies and gentlemen <laughs> i've tried very hard to teach my wife it didn't really work out too well no. but you know it's okay because I'll, I'll handle it i guess unless she wants to do it that's that's fine by me but as long as she doesn't get a guess on herself
1: <laughs> well because i teach in the state of new jersey i have to live here so luckily i won't need to know how to do it too much
0: yeah and i'm really just the jersey transplant so <laughs>
1: So a few hours later, after he did leave the car in the parking garage, he did leave the keys in the tank door place, um, Serrano called back to confirm it's all there.
0: Okay. So he set everything up for him pretty much. Yes. And Serrano
1: keeps calling him. He won't let his nephew call him.
0: Right. Because then they could, you know, at least he's thinking that it could be linked, which this is super planned. Which I have to say right now, though, that investigators have done an excellent job piecing everything together. Yeah, Seriously, they're able to get, like, judges to sign off on warrants, you know, everything. Like, they're doing a, an excellent job. I can't, I can't even...
1: Who would ever look into that alibi? I mean, it seems super airtight. Well,
0: that's what I'm saying. Like, I had a feeling something didn't... It just didn't sit right.
1: Well, there's more. Okay. So now Pena Harara thought, okay, I don't have to deal with this car anymore. Just like in October... His uncle had returned it, but this time was different. Serrano called him back on December 4th and told him the car was now in Tampa near the airport there, and he needed him to drive to Tampa and return the car there. Now, at first, he didn't want to do this because it was a bit of a drive and a pain in the butt, but Serrano told him he knew he had a lot of credit card debt. So he was going to pay off his credit card debt and then his nephew could pay him back without interest. So Pena agreed to this arrangement and returned the rental car at 2 10 p.m. on December 4th. I mean, just a side note here. I know this is like sad, but this guy is helping you be your alibi for the four murders you just committed and you can't pay off his credit card debt and like not have him pay you back
0: (laughs) i was thinking the same thing actually (laughs) kind of mean Mm, yeah uh, i'm gonna give you money this guy's
1: a monster yeah
0: i'm gonna give you money to pay off your debt but uh don't worry you gotta pay me don't worry man no interest okay dude
1: (laughs) so after that Pena Harara confirmed that the credit card was paid off but it wasn't paid off by serrano it was paid off by serrano's best friend so he still wasn't connected to any of this.
0: That's... This is like... Extreme Diabolical. dedication. And what's crazy is all these people that are doing it for him. Yes. Uh, they're all accomplices. What are you doing? Very strange.
1: So the following month, Pena Harara had seen his uncle for Christmas. And at the Christmas party, his uncle told him about the murders that had taken place in Barstow at Erie Manufacturing. And he said, you can never tell anyone about the rental cars because it would ruin my marriage. So, basically, his nephew is still thinking that this rental car thing is only because he's having an affair.
0: With the girl from Brazil.
1: Correct. So, he's saying, don't tell anyone because then they'll try to pin the murders on me. Okay. So, he even has a cover-up for that. So, I know this is a lot of information to take in. Police were able to piece together that Serrano had left his Atlanta hotel room around 1 p.m., and boarded Delta Flight 1807, which was scheduled to depart at one forty one p.m. He flew under the name Juan Agasso. He landed in Orlando at 3.49 p.m. and went to pick up the rental car that his nephew had left for him in a specific lot with the keys obviously hidden within the car. He drove to Barstow to the Erie manufacturing plant and held George Gonzalez, George Patisto, Frank Dasso hostage in Frank's office. The office that used to be his.
0: Oh, that's an interesting fact. Yeah. You see, so he's extremely, he was extremely bitter. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm
1: hmm. Once. He had shot all three men a total of 12 times. Frank's shooting having been difficult because he tried to get away, he had to retrieve something. When Frank's office had been Nelson Serrano's, he had hidden a pistol in the ceiling tile above his desk just in case the gun enthusiast felt like he needed it. So that's what he was retrieving from the ceiling tile. Okay. And that gun was a 32 caliber pistol.
0: Interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. So once he was dead, he was able to get his gun. And now he had his .22 and he had the 32. Before he left the office, he rummaged through everything, um, trying to make it look like the killer was after something to kind of get the police off of his trail. Then he took the chain from George Patisto's neck and the Rolex from Frank Dasso, And he did that because he wanted to make it look like a robbery as well. As he was leaving, he was confronted by Diane Patisto. She was coming to pick them up for the birthday party. So she was shocked to see him because she knew him and she knew that he had had a bad break with her father. And you know, she's 28 years old, but he's known her since she was 17. And he grabbed her by her hair and shot her. Um, and I'm sorry, the first shot to Diane Patissa was not in the back of her head. It was actually um, in her cheek, but towards the back of her head. So she was dead with the first shot. She was down on the ground. And because he had nothing left in the 22, he pulled out the 32 and he shot her in the face. Unbelievable. Yeah. He then drove to the Tampa airport where he would board a flight headed for Atlanta. Now, it's important to note here that the factory was one hour and a seven minute drive from Orlando airport to the factory, right? And the factory was a one hour, 11 minute ride from the Tampa airport. So it's kind of like the same distance, even though there's like more miles from one airport to the other, it was the same driving distance from the factory. So he figured it would look suspicious to keep going in and out of the Orlando airport. So that's why he left through the Tampa airport. And he used another name when flying out of Tampa. A passenger under the name John White boarded flight 1272 to Atlanta. Now, both ticket purchasers, um, Juan Agasso and John White, both purchased round trip tickets, whether it was from Atlanta to Florida or Florida to Atlanta. But they never used the returning ticket. So he bought Two-way tickets because he thought that would be less suspicious as well.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's... This whole thing's pretty insane, right? Yes. You have to think about how much effort has gone into not getting caught.
1: Right. And that's it's why, a lot. And that's why two pictures were missing. Remember he had this sheet of pictures? Yes. So one was... It was for both IDs.
0: Which is like...
1: The planning is insane here, and he almost got away with it.
0: But what I love about the whole thing, right, is we talk about how like how hard it is to like get away with murder. You got to think about the year. You know, this took place in that what ninety seven seven. Sorry. Well,
1: yeah, December. Well, okay. so close.
0: So like the late nineties. You have to think all well, like all the testing still new. Like um, you know, like you said, this is pre um. Nine eleven, like you could get away with stuff, but like it was. St- look how hard it still was for him. Like it's just yeah. th- to get away with murder in today's world is like so difficult. But this guy almost did it because he had people like vouching for him. He went above and beyond the like more oh, than yeah. I've ever seen anyone do.
1: And this all, I mean, like the detective work that's been done here is incredible. However, they needed physical evidence to prove that that's what happened. I mean, they could say, oh, we think he did fly as Juan Agasso, and we think he did fly as John White, but they don't have physical evidence. They can't prove that. right? So through a lot of patience and good police work, they did finally find physical evidence that would corroborate the story that they think went down. Nelson Serrano left the parking garage with the rental car that was waiting for him and had to give a return ticket. Those return tickets are kept by Orlando International Airport Security. Isn't that crazy?
0: Uh, Even that two is. years. Yeah. Yeah
1: the ticket was able to be fingerprinted by police and those prints were determined to belong to Serrano. Wow. And the shoe print that was found on the chair, I mean, this one's a little bit more shaky, um, that was stepped on to reach the ceiling panel in Frank Dasso's office was traced back to a shoe that Nelson Serrano actually gifted another nephew. Like he tried to give the shoe away.
0: <laughs> Let me just give away some evidence. Yes. Hey, you want some shoes, man? Yeah.
1: Oh, God. <laughs> then there was the car rental evidence. The car that was rented by Serrano's nephew had traveled 139 miles. The distance from the car rental facility to the Orlando airport was 8.5 miles. The distance from the Orlando airport to the factory was 80. And the distance from the factory to the Tampa airport was 50. That will get you very, very close to 139 miles.
0: All right. Well, he didn't cover all his tracks.
1: Serrano was charged with the murder of four people. During the trial, the prosecution presented all of the evidence that I just provided to you. As you can imagine, uh, the jury was... <laughs> Shocked, like what a case to be presented to you. The defense claimed that Serrano had been in his hotel for those 10 hours nursing a severe migraine. He also believed that Frank Dasso had hired a hitman to kill George Gonzalez because he wanted his family to be the only ones in control of Erie Manufacturing and that the hitmen were the ones who purchased the ticket and were trying to frame him. This Imagine listening crazy. to that play out.
0: No. It's insane.
1: It is. On June 26, 2007, the trial court sentenced Serrano to death for each of the four murders. Four death penalties.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: The judge went, pretty aggressive on him for this. Uh, The trial court found the following aggravators in regards to all four murders. They were committed in cold, calculated, and a premeditated manner. And the murders were committed during the commission of other felonies. That is going to get you a death sentence in the state of Florida. And the judge made note of the planning and the cold-hearted way that he killed the children of Phil Dosso that he had known for over 10 years. And how did like the planning, the callousness, it just all contributed to him getting those four death sentences.
0: I mean, and also I don't know if this to be fact, right? Obviously I'm not in the mind of this judge, but you have to think he probably threw the book at him too, because He killed a a prosecutor. Yeah. No, it's true. You know, let's not forget that, too. She was a 28-year-old prosecutor. I mean, like, you're not going to... I'm sure it holds a little bit more weight as well. That's like if you were to kill a cop, you know?
1: I know he didn't plan it, but on Frank Dasso's daughter's birthday, they're always going to have to remember my father was murdered this day.
0: Yeah. It's pretty...
1: So sad. It's pretty crappy. I do just want to make one correction because I did say that Nelson Serrano's ex-wife um her name is Gladys Agasso I said that she was the mother of Francisco but that's not true she's the mother to another one of Serrano's sons whose name was Juan which makes sense as to why Juan Agasso so he literally used um like what basically his son's first name and his ex-wife's maiden name
0: right to make up an alias
1: yeah it's it's just his callousness and planning is unbelievable and it, there's never been a clearer case of premeditation here
0: 100 percent. i mean he didn't do a bad job but you know what even though for the moment he was a step ahead the cops followed they did not let up
1: yeah well you know what though if they didn't catch and talk to um the one suspect Maurizio they would have never looked into Nelson Serrano again that's true so
0: very good point
1: I'm glad they did the work to see like okay 10 hours it's possible yeah um all right but before we go what I want to do is I want to thank all of our new patrons that have joined patreon we hope you're enjoying all of your episodes and we just want to give a special thanks to Aaron Peterson Michi Kate Cosner, Marina Ledesmo upped her pledge, Renee Houghton, Carolina, J M, Haral Lathia, Sarah Hibbler, Lori Hensley, Nikki B. Jenna Trudell, Brandy Boxel, Sarah Kelly, Brittany Meredith, Thebes, Alicia Ditmer, Baby Glazer, Caitlin. Teresa Lynn, Catherine Smith, Paula Redmond, Julia Massius, Denisha Woods, and Kim Kahey. Thank you guys so much for joining our Patreon page and hope you're having fun with that backlog. I think as of right now, there's 53 episodes on Patreon.
0: Yeah. It's getting there. It's growing.
1: It, it oh my God, it's huge. <laughs> All right, guys. We hope you have a good two weeks and we will see you then. Bye guys.
0: Bye guys.